Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. And I've never really done this before, but if you are interested in a good, solid, conservative evangelical school, you should check out Colorado Christian University. They have a great online program, probably one of the better online programs in the country as far as getting a good solid education. Uh, you can check out their website at ccu.edu. Um, it's located in Lakewood, Denver, but they have a lot of extension campuses around the Colorado area. They also have a great online learning program. And I teach most of the theology, New Testament, Old Testament, uh, biblical interpretation, church history, ethics, systematic theology. Most of the uh, Theological and Biblical Studies courses I do um, are on the online campus, and so most of the classes I teach are online. But if you are interested in Colorado Christian University, I would check it out, ccu.edu. Well, thank you for listening to the podcast today. Um, if you've been paying attention to the interaction between myself and Leighton Flowers on his YouTube uh, clips with Soteriology 101, he has responded in two episodes uh, to my previous podcast on the role of the Holy Spirit in conversion in the traditionalist theology. And so I recommend you to go listen to that. I may um, respond to him. Leighton and I have discussed the possibility of doing a joint podcast, not a debate, but a discussion where we can hash out the differences uh, between our two views. And so I would encourage you to go listen to his uh, rebuttal of, of mine. Today I'm going to share with you something that I've been very hesitant. I've been, it's almost a year that I've been hesitant to share this. And the reason that I've been hesitant to share this is not because I don't think it's worthy. I think it's probably one of the most important um, studies I've done in the past couple of years. And it's related to my doctoral thesis that I got last year when I graduated with my doctorate in expository preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. And the issue is on Jesus and his preaching. And the big question is, was Jesus, in fact, an expository preacher? And the reason I've been hesitant to share this information with you is because in all of my study, and I studied probably every book there was, every resource there was to look at the preaching of Jesus, the exegetical conclusions that I have studied and the things that I have seen in the text have not shown up in any of the writings that I am aware of. And so what I have proposed and what I wrote in my doctoral thesis, nobody else out there has written. I don't know of anybody who has come to the same conclusions that I have based upon the expository preaching of Jesus. And so I'm a little protective of my conclusions because um, in scholarship, um, I'm one of the few ones or the only one out there that's really articulated what I believe um, is the expository model of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4. And so I've kept this um, close to my vest. I have um, kind of protected this. Uh, my doctoral dissertation is copyrighted, so I'm not worried about people stealing my information. But it's been very, very um, important to me, um, and, and I just feel like the study that I've done and the gleanings that I've gotten from the scripture in my doctoral dissertation are very important to me, but I feel like it's time for me to share those with my listening audience. And so this podcast is going to ask the question, was Jesus himself, in fact, an expository preacher. Now, there is no question among scholarship, among um, commentators, among biblical historians, that Jesus was a preacher. Clearly, the synoptic gospels reveal that Jesus placed a premium on the authoritative preaching of the kingdom of God. Uh, Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said this, God had only one son and made him a preacher. Albert Bond says, Jesus of Nazareth was the world's master preacher. His ministry was brief but epochal. Through his own custom and his direction for the later ministry of the apostles, Jesus created the Christian pulpit. I love that. Jesus created the Christian pulpit. 
Hughes Oliphant Old, who's written a great volume on the history of preaching and teaching and the history of the church, says Jesus was preeminently a preacher of the word. Again and again, revivals of preaching have begun with the recognition of this fundamental fact. Jesus was a preacher, and he gave a major portion of his energy to preaching. And so, there is no question that Jesus was a preacher. He was a herald, especially when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Synoptic Gospels reveal Jesus as a herald. Now, the Greek word there is kerux, or keruso is the, the verb form. It means to herald with authority. One of the primary words used to describe Jesus' preaching comes from the word group kerux or keruso. Now, before we describe Jesus' role as a herald, let's just talk about the meaning of this word group. What is a herald? What's a kerux? What does it mean uh, when, when, when you caruso, when you declare the word of God in that culture? Well, in the ancient Greek culture, the time that the New Testament was written, uh, the office of a herald was extremely important for both the political and cultural life of the Roman Empire. So entrusted with the message from his sovereign, a herald would come and he had no authority to deviate from the message. He had to deliver it faithfully as the official spokesman of his superior. So when a herald came, he had to give the direct message from the king or from the general. He was a messenger, a town crier, if you would, that would come and give an authoritative declaration from a ruler or from a king. And the herald had no right or business or, or, or um or possibility of deviating from that message. He could not make up his own message. He had to declare exactly what the sovereign wanted him to declare. And so when you think about heralding, that's what we do as preachers. We herald the king's message. We don't invent our own message. We basically transmit, explain, herald God's word. The New Testament noun there for preaching implies that the gospel is a royal proclamation and we are the king's herald. In other words, we don't deviate from the word. The heralds in the ancient culture, they had to deliver their message as it was given to them. They had to report it as it was given to it because they understood that behind them stood a higher power. The herald did not come and express his own views. He was the spokesman for his master. That's a very important understanding of what our role is as preachers. We do not make up our message. We do not deviate from the message. We stand as spokesmen with the authority of God's word as our message, and we deliver it as faithfully as we can in authoritative proclamation. So that's what the word keruso or kerux, a herald, means. And so Jesus was a herald. That Greek word is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to describe the preaching of Jesus. So let's just look at Matthew. After his baptism and his subsequent testing in the wilderness, Matthew introduces Jesus' public ministry as that of a herald. In Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Most translations, the ESV and others, translate the, um, the word caruso as preach. Listen to what John MacArthur states. Preaching was a central part of Jesus' ministry and remains a central part of the ministry of the church. Jesus preached his message with certainty. He did not come to dispute or to argue, but to proclaim, to preach. Preaching is the proclamation of certainties, not the suggestion of possibilities. What he proclaimed not only was certain, but was of the utmost authority. I like that quote from Dr. MacArthur because in our age of postmodern pluralism, emergent church squishiness, 
there is this whole movement that we really aren't sure what God says, and so we can't preach with confidence, we can't proclaim with certainty, because we're not really sure what Jesus said, or we're not really sure if this is really what he meant. And so if you have a low view of inerrancy, if you have a low view of the authority of Scripture, you're not going to preach with authority because you don't see the God's Word as authoritative. Matthew emphasizes Jesus' role as a preacher again in, in Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, this passage of scripture really stresses the threefold nature of Jesus' ministry, preaching, teaching, and healing. We see him doing that all the time. But the priority seems to be placed upon preaching. Matthew 9.35 repeats the same theme. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the, king, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every affliction. So there is this proclamation ministry of Jesus. We see in the gospel of Mark the same thing. Mark introduces Jesus by portraying him as a preacher, as a herald. Mark 1, 14-15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This word used for proclaiming is also keruso. The same word to proclaim, to herald, to declare with authority. Jesus spoke of the urgency of his preaching mission in Mark 1, 38-39. He said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is very clear. His role as a leader, as the God in the flesh, he was sent on a mission to preach the gospel. He says, that's why I came out. That's why I have been sent to preach the gospel. You know, the disciples really wanted to capitalize on Jesus being some type of traveling miracle worker. And sometimes they tried to hinder Jesus from his mission of preaching. And, and, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had sent him with the express purpose to preach, uh, remained undeflected from his mission. He knew he was called to preach. So that we see it in Matthew, we see it in Mark. What about Luke? Luke's gospel also pictures Jesus as a preacher sent from a sovereign God to proclaim the gospel with urgency, both in the synagogues and the marketplace and the countryside. Uh, Luke 4, 43-44, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Again, he stresses the urgency of his mission to preach the gospel. I must preach the good news. This is why I was sent for this purpose. It is a sovereign imperative from the Father in sending me as the Messiah, God in flesh, that I must preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, some have argued that there is a sharp distinction between preaching Keruso and teaching, the Greek word didasko, in the ministry of Jesus. What some will say is that when Jesus was in the synagogue, he taught. He basically just taught the scriptures, he explained the scriptures, but he never preached like a herald in that context. So when Jesus was in the synagogues, he simply was a teacher, not a preacher. And then conversely, they say that when he was out in the countryside, when he was out in the crowds and the villages, um, he never did expository teaching. He simply just preached the gospel of the kingdom. Um, some scholars would say this. Some scholars attempt to differentiate between teaching and preaching on the grounds that teaching relates primarily to the polemical dialogues that took place between Jesus and the religious leaders in the synagogues, while preaching is essentially the proclamation of the good news. But such a distinction is difficult to maintain since the Sermon on the Mount is introduced by the form and he began to teach them. Whether teaching or preaching, Jesus is the promised herald of good news which he proclaims both in synagogues and along the roadside. 
The reason I stress this is because when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he was an expository teacher and he was a proclaimer. I don't think you can differentiate those two roles in what a pastor does today. When I stand up and preach on a Sunday morning, I'm doing both didactic explanation as well as heralding and proclaiming. Now, what's the distinction between those two? Well, a didactic teaching alone could just be done as a lecture like on a Wednesday night class or in a Bible study where you're basically explaining expositionally the text. You're merely teaching. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you step into the pulpit and you preach, there is an authoritative declaration where you're aiming for the heart. You're aiming for the will. You are declaring with authority. Now, that includes exposition. That includes the didactic instruction. You can't preach without teaching. But I, I think that you can teach without preaching. And the argument goes is that Jesus did both. When he was in the synagogues, he taught and he preached. When he was out in the countrysides and the villages and besides the, beside the Sea of Galilee, he both preached and he taught. And so when you think about Jesus' preaching, it's interesting because it's very unique. Because it contained generative truth. It contained new revelation. He was preaching parables that were not from the Old Testament scriptures. And so when Jesus is preaching, he is preaching the word of God on the spot because he is God. Now, the synoptic gospels consistently demonstrate that Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom with authority and urgency. He was a herald. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I suggest that in the Gospels and the life and ministry of our Lord himself, you have this clear indication of the primacy of preaching and teaching. So, Jesus authoritatively proclaimed the Gospel as a herald, as a kerux, he caruso, as evidenced by the repeated occurrences in the Synoptic Gospels. Most scholars, historians, biblical theologians do not question the nature of Jesus' preaching ministry as that of a carux, caruso. But here's where the rub comes. Here's where the, the controversy comes. Many question the expositional nature of his preaching. So let's ask the question, was Jesus in fact an expository preacher? Francis Handy has written Jesus the Preacher. It's an older book but it's probably one of the earlier um, 20th century works that gave a fully, fully orbed uh, treatment of Jesus as a preacher. Francis Handy says this, A careful study of our Lord's utterances reveals that he both proclaimed and expounded the word of God, or good news of the kingdom, according to the particular situation confronting him and his understanding of its need. Sometimes the element of preaching dominates, sometimes the element of teaching, and often the two are blended. He stands near to the modern preacher in his conception of preaching. So Francis Handy, in the 1940s, a scholar who's written a pretty extensive book on Jesus' preaching, argues, and he's one of the few that argues that Jesus was both a declarer of the good news as well as an expository preacher. Now, there is another work by a man named Bond, the master preacher. He's written a book, The Master Preacher. He will deny this. Um, he flat out says, quote, Jesus was not an expository preacher. Popular thought so classes him, but incorrectly so. He was a scriptural preacher in the sense that he often referred to the scriptures, but he did not give extended exegesis of the Old Testament. That's Bond's argument. And, and that's very popular. Jesus did not give extended exegesis of the Old Testament. Now, my professor, Dr. Herschel York, who was my doctoral supervisor, who has written a very good book on preaching, Preaching with bold assurance, he makes the argument, and we discuss this, that pastors should not attempt to preach like Jesus, especially the inductive nature of the parables. I mean, he flat out says in his book, frankly, we're never told to preach like Jesus and probably shouldn't try. 
Now, this was the pushback that he gave me when I was trying to defend this doctoral thesis because he, and I think I convinced him in my paper to maybe change his viewpoint on this, but he's got a pretty blanket statement, we should not try to, tr try to preach like Jesus. Now, you have to unpack that with Dr. York because... Basically, what he's arguing is, he's trying to, and I agree with him on this, he's saying if you preach like Jesus, then you are generating your own truth, and you are, um, Jesus isn't a class all by himself, because he's incarnate, God in the flesh, he preached parables, he preached stories, uh, he, he generated his own truth, you as a preacher should not be able to do that, because you're not Jesus. Now, I understand that, and I agree with him on that. We as pastors, we're not omniscient. We can't look into the hearts of the people that we're preaching to like Jesus was. We are not God in the flesh like Jesus is. And so there's a lot of limitations that we have in trying to imitate the preaching of Jesus. I mean, we can't pe read people's minds like Jesus. We're not God in the flesh. And so I agree with Dr. York. Pastors should not to, to attempt to preach in many of the ways Jesus preached. However... And this is where I had to really try to defend my thesis. I believe the New Testament gives evidence of Jesus' preaching expository sermons from the Old Testament Scripture in a propositional and deductive manner. That's my argument. And if Jesus did that, then my other argument is, therefore, pastors should attempt to model and employ this method in their preaching ministry. Now, you need to avoid other models of Jesus, parables. We have limitations. Dr. York says this again in his book. Certainly, we should emulate many elements of Jesus' preaching, his passion, his high view of Scripture, his confrontation and application, and his tendency to force a decision of acceptance and rejection. And I agree with that. Dr. York would say, you can model a lot of the attitude or the, the, the distinctives of Jesus, like his passion, his high view of scripture, his calling for a response, we should imitate that. But, but we need to be very careful in not preaching like Jesus because we don't want to be generating our own truth like Jesus did. We're not God in the flesh, so we need to be very, very careful. And I agree with him wholeheartedly on that. But I also push back and say this. If the New Testament actually reveals an expository method and model of preaching from Christ himself, then should not pastors use that as an example? Now, Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. And that's unrepeatable. No preacher today is ever going to stand in the same category as Jesus, God in the flesh, able to read minds. You, you, can, you can generate truth and it be God's very word. But in the Gospels, there are a few examples of Jesus reading the Old Testament scriptures, explaining the Old Testament scriptures, and applying the Old Testament scriptures in a deductive and propositional manner. Now, that is expository preaching, according to my definition. You read the text, you explain the text, and you apply the text. And you do that in a way that exposes the text for what it is. And so, when you do expository preaching, it has to be regulated to the God-intended meaning of the text. What does the text mean? And then you declare that, you preach that with authority as propositional truth to be obeyed. Now let's listen to Handy again, because again, he was one of the older guys that affirmed that Jesus was an expository preacher. Let me give you a quote from Francis Handy in his book, Jesus the Preacher. He says, Good preaching, like the preaching of Jesus, centers around profound truths. His preaching was more than mere heralding. It was teaching. True preaching is both a proclamation and a body of truth. So not only must the preacher proclaim as an evangelist and call men to God, he must teach, expound, and build his people up in God. Now, I agree with him. I, I love that quote from Handy because he brings together the, the teaching of Jesus and argues that, yes, he was a herald. He proclaimed with authority, but he also taught expositionally. And you as a pastor need to do both. You herald, you declare with authority, you call people to response, you urge with application, but you also expound and teach and build your people up. So, let's look at Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 30 as an example of an expository sermon. 
This is the heart of the exegesis in the study that I did that I have discovered that no one else has come up with the the way that maybe I have understood this through some very intense study. Now, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes back and visits his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue, and he preaches what I believe is an expository sermon from the book of Isaiah. So, Luke would emphasize that Jesus' custom or pattern of attending the synagogue was a pretty important part of Jesus' expository preaching over his three-year ministry. Often you see in the Synoptic Gospels Jesus going into the synagogue to preach and to teach. And so what Luke does, I believe, is he provides a description of Jesus' expository preaching in this passage. Now, we need to be careful here. Nowhere does Jesus or the Gospel writer Luke specifically command or prescribe this type of preaching as normative for pastors to emulate. So, you know, when Jesus gets done preaching in the synagogue, Luke doesn't turn around and say, therefore, modern-day pastors, you need to preach like this. So, when you look at New Testament narratives, when you look at the Gospels, they're reporting to us events that occurred. And we need to interpret those events in light of their historical realities. Sometimes they are just... Um, examples for us to see, maybe not prescriptions for us to follow. But I am arguing that when Jesus goes into Nazareth and preaches a sermon, I believe it's a positive model of expository preaching that we could adopt, we could model after. Now, we need to understand our limitations. Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. There are some things he does in this sermon that we are not able to do. But I think that we can look at Jesus as an expository preacher. And here's the heart of my argument. I believe that this passage of Scripture provides a seven-fold blueprint or model for expository preaching. I think you see seven aspects of expository preaching, seven issues, seven marks, if you will, of expository preaching from this text. And so if you are listening to this podcast and you're a seminary student, you're a pastor, uh, you're a preacher, um, this material you're not going to find anywhere else. I'm not trying to say this to be um, inflating myself. I'm just saying that I've done the research. I've I've done the dissertation on this. I've, I've read all of the sources there are out there. You're not going to find this in any books. And so what I'm going to be sharing with you are my conclusions that I have come to through a long, extended exegesis of this passage of Scripture. And I think from this you can find seven very, very powerful and strong examples or marks or characteristics of expository preaching. So let's look at what these are. Here's number one. Mark number one that you see from this passage. Spirit-empowered preaching. Spirit-empowered preaching. Now, in Luke 4.14, what you see here is Jesus is emerging from the wilderness, from after his baptism. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding company, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to his town, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all who spoke and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Luke 4.14, this narrative begins and explains how Jesus emerged from his testing in the wilderness as a preacher anointed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Greg Heisler has written a pretty good book, Spirit-Led Preaching, The Holy Spirit's Role in Sermon Preparation. He's a, he's a, a professor at a Southeastern Seminary. Notice what he says in his book. Simply put, our Lord's communion with the Holy Spirit was established before he took on his public ministry of teaching and preaching. The Spirit's empowerment was evident even before Jesus opened his mouth to preach. So it may be with us today. My friend Art Azurdia, who has preached in our church and has written the excellent book, Spirit-Empowered Preaching, has said this, Art said this in his book, If, for the effectual heralding of the Word of God, such an endowment of power proved necessary for the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles, and other Christians of the New Testament, and even the incarnate Son of God Himself, how much more will such power be necessary for contemporary preachers of the gospel? Now this may be a little hard for you to understand, but even though Jesus was God in the flesh, He still needed the empowering of the Holy Spirit in order to preach and teach with authority. That's why before He begins to preach... Before his public ministry, when he's baptized and then goes into the wilderness for 40 days and then he emerges, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the preaching ministry. And you may say, well, why does Jesus as the incarnate Son of God need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of the, the incarnation. It's a mystery to me. But we have biblical evidence that Jesus himself needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to preach with authority. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, What is significant is that even our Lord himself, the Son of God, could not have exercised his ministry as a man on earth if he had not received the special, peculiar anointing of the Holy Spirit to perform his task. Now, how does this provide a model for modern expository preachers? If you want to proclaim like Jesus... Well, if you want to preach like Jesus, the first and foremost thing you need is the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to transform your preaching. Stephen Olford, he was written a book called Anointed Expository Preaching, says this, Preaching with the unction of the Holy Spirit never neutralizes an individual group or a congregation. On the contrary, Holy Spirit-anointed preaching always precipitates a decision. What we need today is a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit if our ministry is to penetrate the hearts of saint and sinner alike. Where there is an anointing, there is an authority. Now, some of you may be listening to this and be like, oh, I'm getting a little scared here, Pastor Sean. You're using the term anointing. Please understand me that when I talk about the anointing or the empowering or the unction of the Holy Spirit, I am not talking about the abuses that you see on uh, TBN and Christian television and all the weird things that people talk about, the anointing, as if it's some type of force or fog or electricity that you throw around. That's not what I'm talking about. This is something that is at home in Reformed theology. You go back and you read even John Calvin. You read the Puritans like John Owen. 
You look at Charles Spurgeon. You look at um, George Whitfield. You look at Jonathan Edwards. You look at Martin Lloyd-Jones. You look at those within the Reformed tradition. We are in this stream of Holy Spirit-empowered proclamation. In other words, all we're saying is that if you are going to preach authoritatively, expositionally, you can't just stand up in your own power and deliver some type of lecture to your congregation and expect for God to bless it. You need to pray for God to come in the preaching of the word and to exposit it so that the Holy Spirit is present in the preaching of the Word because the Holy Spirit's the only one that can illuminate the text to make people understand it. The Holy Spirit's the only one who can regenerate lost sinners and bring about conversion. And the Holy Spirit's the only one who can sanctify the saints. And so when you preach, you are totally dependent upon the power and anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit to bring about true gospel change. And Heisler has a very, very important insight because when Jesus goes into the the, the synagogue in Nazareth, he actually opens up the scroll of Isaiah. Jesus does not go in and like these television preachers start rambling about this and that and throwing the Holy Spirit around and, and waving his cloak and blowing people over or slaying people in the Spirit. What does Jesus do in the power of the Holy Spirit? He opens up the text of Scripture. That's very, very important. He opens up the text of the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it. And listen to what Heisler says, because I think he has a great insight. He says, it's also important to note that the Spirit's empowerment came in direct relationship to the scroll being handed to Jesus. The implication is compelling support for Spirit-led expository preaching. Even the living word, Jesus, used the written word under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as an authentication of the authority and power of his teaching. So, when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, it's always tied to the text of Scripture. And so, the closer you are to the text of Scripture, the more you know the Holy Spirit is going to show up in power. When you deviate from the text of Scripture, you are deviating from the source of power that's going to come in your preaching. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to guide us into all truth. The Holy Spirit's job, according to John 14, 15, and 16, is to guide us into truth. He's the Spirit of truth. He's to glorify Jesus. And so how is Jesus glorified? How is he the Spirit of truth? It comes when we stick as close as we can to the written word. And that's what Jesus does. He goes into the synagogue. He opens up the written word, the inspired inerrant text of Isaiah. And he begins to preach from the text and the power of the Holy Spirit. So effective pastoral leadership requires the empowering of the Holy Spirit just like Jesus' did in order to preach the text faithfully. John Piper says this, How utterly dependent we are on the Holy Spirit in the work of preaching. All genuine preaching is rooted in a feeling of desperation. A feeling of desperation. Preacher, I hope that's how you feel every time you mount those steps to walk up to your pulpit, that you are feeling desperate, that you are standing knock-kneed before your congregation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are opening up the sacred text behind the sacred desk, and that when you are about to preach, the people are going to hear the very voice of God in the written text, and you desperately need the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to come to open people's ears, to open blind eyes, to make the text come alive, to be like a dagger in people's soul, so that lost sinners can be converted, that saints can be edified by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's mark number one of expository preaching. You cannot divorce expository preaching from spirit empoweredness, the empowering of the Spirit. So that's number one, spirit-empowered preaching. Secondly, the second aspect of expository preaching, and this may be obvious, but it's preaching that is in corporate worship. Now, in addition to the powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit, this text reveals that expository preaching usually occurs within the context of gathered worship. Where is Jesus? He's in the synagogue. Now, it's very, very important to understand synagogue worship. In the synagogue of Jesus' day, the rabbis read the text and they followed it by giving an expository sermon. 
Robert Stein, who is a great scholar in his Luke commentary, writes this. I think it's important. This is the oldest account we possess of synagogue service, which apparently contained the following. The singing of psalms, the reading of the Shema, the repetition of the 18 blessings, a reading of the law in Hebrew, followed by a translation in Aramaic, a reading from the prophets in Hebrew, followed by a translation in Aramaic, a sermon on the scripture, and a concluding blessing by the ruling ruler of the synagogue. That's very, very important. Because when you look at the elements of synagogue worship, you see why we worship the way we worship today. I think you can see the synagogue worship elements being imported into New Testament worship, and that's where we get our liturgy, if you will, our order of service, or the elements that are to be in corporate worship. Jesus goes and is a part of this corporate worship gathering where they sang psalms. Don't we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs today? The reading of the Shema. Do we not have scripture reading? The repetition of the 18 blessings. Do we not have responsive readings? A reading of the law in Hebrew followed by a translation Aramaic. Don't we have more scripture readings? And then there's a sermon on the scripture. The rabbi would stand up and he would exposit the text. Do we not have expository preaching on the text? And then a concluding blessing. There's the benediction. Now, you don't have giving of tithes and offerings and things like that in there, but for the most part, the elements of a synagogue worship service are really pretty much what we have today in our services. And it was Jesus' custom to preach on a regular basis. It's very important. As was his custom. As was his custom. Jesus entered the synagogue. That's a very important because Jesus, even though he was God in the flesh, and he had an itinerant ministry where he went around doing God's will, he did not forsake the assembly of meeting together in corporate worship with God's people. He valued the importance of joining corporately together under the authority of the preached word. And so if Jesus valued the synagogue worship, if Jesus valued the expository preaching of the authoritative word and the gathered church together, then should we not today as believers have that same value? That it's vitally important that you as a believer connect yourself in membership to a local church where you can participate in corporate worship and be under the authoritative expository preaching of the word of God. It was very, very important to Jesus. It says, as was his custom, he would enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. J. Adams has claimed this, We have no record of an apostolic address given in a Christian assembly, but we do have Jesus, as was his custom, entering the synagogue and preaching from a biblical portion assigned for that day. So, like the rabbis of the synagogue, and like Jesus himself, what do we do today? We do the same thing that Jesus did when he entered the synagogue. We read the text, we expound the text, we explain the text, and we apply the text with the sermon as the central aspect of corporate worship. Contrary to popular opinion, the sermon is the central component of Christian worship. Now, if you go into some churches, you'd think it's the music, it's the entertainment, um, it's the live band, um, we're going to have 45 minutes of singing and maybe a 15-minute sermonette. When you look at the synagogue worship, when you look at New Testament worship, especially in Timothy and Titus, you see that the expository sermon stands as the central component of Christian worship. It was a central component of Jewish worship in the synagogue. So when Jesus goes in there, the main portion of the sermon the main portion of the synagogue worship is not singing, it's not frivolous stuff, it is the reading of the scriptures, the explaining of the scriptures, and the applying of the scriptures in expository message. So that's very, very important. And so pastors, as you lead in expository preaching, the, the second aspect you need to understand is not only to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, but number two, you need to make sure that the sermon, the expository sermon, is the central and highest point of gathered Christian worship. Okay, number three. This is the meat. 
reading and expositing the text. What, what's, the, what's the heart of expository preaching? Okay, number one, spirit empowerment. Number two, the importance of the preached word in gathered worship. The sermon is the central aspect of the worship. Number three, reading and exposing the text. This is a very important template. Luke uses two key words to describe the nature of Jesus' preaching. In in Luke 4.15, Luke says that Jesus taught, didasco, in their synagogues. In 4.18-19, Jesus was also anointed to preach, caruso. Okay, we've already looked at caruso. Jesus proclaimed like a herald, like a carux, but he also taught expositionally. In other words, you could say it was authoritative exposition. That's what I believe you must do as a preacher, authoritative exposition. You exposit the text authoritatively. So in chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, Jesus stands, he reads from the Septuagint, the scroll of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He stands and reads the scripture. Listen to what John Calvin says. Christ rose up to read, not only that his voice might be heard better, but in token of reverence. The majesty of scripture deserves that its expounders should make it apparent that they proceed to handle it with modesty and reverence. So we see a model here from Jesus. Effective expository preaching requires pastors to actually read the text with reverence, and then you don't deviate from that text throughout the remainder of the sermon. When you stand up to preach, you read the text, you go back to the text, you explain the text, so that when your people are sitting before you, they can, with their fingers or with their eyes, look and see exactly where you're getting your points, exactly where you're getting your material. They don't sit there and say, where is he getting that? He's jumping out of the text. I'm not tracking, I'm not following him. So, so it's very important that you read the text, stick with the text, and then you expound the text. Now, this text that Jesus is preaching is an Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And what you find is that Luke doesn't go into detail to, to explain how Jesus gave the historical background of this Isaiah passage, probably because in the synagogue it was a well-known passage of Scripture. But what Jesus does here is he reinterprets this historical reality by focusing it solely upon his fulfillment as the Messiah in order to inaugurate the the realities of the gospel. And so um, his sermon is an interpretation of Old Testament scripture. And so what he's doing here is that Jesus is expositing the written word. It's the scroll of Isaiah. This is not a parable where Jesus is saying there was a man who went to go find um, a treasure in a field. This is not where Jesus is generating new truth, like in a parable. This is not where Jesus is giving a teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, per se. This is an example where Jesus takes the written word, the scroll, from Isaiah, and he reads that, And then he expounds upon the written text. That's why I think it's a model for us. Because in this synagogue sermon, Jesus isn't generating new truth. He's not telling a parable. He's sticking directly with what the written word of God says. Now, the grammatical structure of Jesus' exposition is from this Isaiah passage. And so it it focuses on four four infinitives that express how Jesus came as the, the Messiah. First, Jesus comes to be the proclaimer of good news to the poor. Again, there's that word. Um, it's not Caruso here. It's a, it's a euangitsalo, where we get our word evangelism. So Jesus came to be an evangelist, to preach the good news. Secondly, Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's the word Caruso. And so Jesus' mission, he's basically saying, listen, my mission is to come as a preacher, to come as a herald, and not just to preach, but to actually bring about liberation from spiritual bondage. And so Jesus is taking that passage and he's reading it and he's applying it and he's saying, listen, this passage of scripture is about me as the anointed Messiah. I am coming as a role of the preacher. And not just as a preacher, but actually to accomplish salvation. So the third thing Jesus focuses on is setting captives free, providing forgiveness of sins. 
I've, I've come to bring liberty or release. Um, that Greek word that is used for release, especially in Luke's theology, in Luke and Acts, is almost always translated as forgiveness, to release from sins. Jesus came to bring forgiveness of sins. So Jesus was not just to come to preach or to announce that there was forgiveness of sins, but he was actually going to accomplish it by his death on the cross as his sacrifice on the cross. He wouldn't just announce that there would be forgiveness of sins. He would actually procure that through his death on the cross. But it needed to be announced. It needed to be proclaimed. It needed to be taught. And then the final infinitive, again, is upon proclaiming Caruso, the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. Now this is probably an allusion to the Old Testament concept of the year of Jubilee that you look and see back in Leviticus 25. Uh, the year of Jubilee illusion plays upon Jesus' role as the, the Messiah, the one who's come to bring people into a right relationship with God. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's heralding, he's trumpeting, he's declaring the day of the Lord. He's saying that release from sin has come that the gospel is here in himself as God in the flesh. He is the fulfillment of that promise. And so Luke doesn't give any, us any more details in this passage, noting whether Jesus gave a, a longer exposition of Isaiah. All we have that's recorded by Luke is the recitation of that scripture. Now, at this point, you may say, well, that's just the reading of the scripture. That's not expositing the scripture. All Jesus did was read it, closed up his Bible, and said, okay, let's all go home. But there is a grammatical clue in, verses 420, in, in verse 21. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you may just go past that and say, well, that's an incidental bit of information. Luke uses the term, began to say. And what most scholars believe, and if you look at the Greek of that, and you look at the tense, and you look at the context, most scholars, and I've come to this conclusion myself, indicates that Jesus may have given a lengthier exposition than what was recorded. Okay? The text says that Jesus began to speak, which suggests that he was giving more than just one sentence of exposition. It wasn't like Jesus read the text and then folded up his Bible. He began to speak. Luke does not record the rest of the sermon, but we do know from synagogue sermons, from synagogue worship, that the synagogue consisted of an exposition of the text. Now, how do we know that? You can go to Acts chapter 13 and see Paul in the synagogue in Pisidia Antioch, giving a word of exhortation, where the, the ruler of the synagogue says, Paul, give us a word of exhortation. And Paul stands up and gives an expository sermon where he doesn't just read the text, but he goes on to explain it. And so by inference, by what we know historically of synagogue worship, by that verb he began to say, we can come up with the exegetical, historical, contextual conclusion that Luke did not record for us the entire sermon, but Jesus went on to begin give explanation, application, exposition of that text. And so Mounts basically says this, and I agree with him, they needed to be taught the implications of this announcement. Thus, teaching is expounding in detail of that which is proclaimed. And so, Jesus proclaimed that message. He read the text, he proclaimed it, and then he unpacked it and explained it to them. He explained it, he exposited it, he taught, but he also declared it with authority. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So, number one, spirit-empowered preaching. Number two, the importance of the sermon as the high point in gathered worship. Number three, expository preaching is reading and explaining the text. Number four, it's got to be gospel-focused. It's got to be focused on Jesus and the gospel. Um, this is the whole idea of gospel-centered preaching or Christocentric preaching. Um, we, when we preach the, the text... 
We need to be very careful, not that we try to find Jesus in every passage of Scripture and force some type of weird allegorical method. Um, You can take extremes to that. But the question you've got to ask is, every text that you preach has got to be tied back to the gospel. And so if you preach a text and it's acceptable to a Mormon, to a Jewish synagogue, to a Unitarian church, um, if it's just moral platitudes and you're faithful to the text, you preach the text, but you don't mention Jesus, you don't mention the gospel, you don't mention the cross, you don't mention forgiveness of sins, you don't mention the need for repentance, I don't think you're being faithful to expository preaching. That just doesn't mean that you tag on an invitation at the end of a message. So you preach an expository message that has nothing to do with Christ or the gospel, and then at the end you give a five-minute, quote-unquote, altar call invitation. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about in the text itself, whatever text you're looking at, whether Old Testament or New Testament, you're faithful to the spirit-intended meaning of the text, the historical, uh, grammatical, um, hermeneutic, But you also realize that when you preach, it has to be Christ-centered. Jesus does this. He folds up his Bible and says, this is about me. This is about me. This is in fulfillment of me. This all centers upon me. And that's really what we need to do in our preaching, is always tie it back to Christ, tie it back to the gospel, tie it back to God's big story of redemption. Make sure that we don't just teach moral platitudes or or urge people to do something without the the power of the gospel, without Christ central. Okay. All right, the next aspect, number five, pastoral awareness in preaching. In the synagogue sermon, Jesus also modeled how preachers must have a pastoral awareness of their congregation so that you can preach to immediate congregational needs. Now, you need to understand, and I need to understand our limitations here, because, again, we're not omniscient. We don't, Jesus could look into the minds of that audience and know exactly where they were spiritually. He could penetrate them with pertinent application because he was God in the flesh. We can't do that. But, as good pastors, we need to know our flock in such a way that we can apply the scriptures to their current situation and their needs. Now, we can't replicate the incarnational ministry of Jesus. Jesus coming in the flesh was unique, non-repeatable, once and for all reality. So instead of being incarnational, we are representational. We represent or represent that which is in the sacred text. Now, as the infinite God-man Jesus... When he's standing there in the synagogue preaching, he knew the history, the prejudices, the pride of his audience. He knew that. He could look into their hearts and know that. And he could apply that text directly to their current situation. And so his expository preaching involved more than just giving a running commentary in Isaiah 61. Here's what the text means. Here's a running commentary. Um, I'm just going to read it, fold up my Bible. We've got a lot of good information. I'm just going to... you know, read it, and that's all there is to it. No, he pastorally confronts his hearers with their sin and their need to recognize him as the coming Messiah. So, pastors, we need to explain the text accurately in its grammatical historical context. But we also need to make application to our congregation's particular needs. We need to have an acute awareness of the needs of our church family. That helps us to be better preachers. Now, we can't imitate Jesus when he could look into the souls of his hearers, but we can have that prophetic tone. We can have the the tone of Jesus of, thus says the Lord, you must respond. The text has been announced. The text has been explained. I'm going to call for a response. This is not a lecture. Jesus is not in the synagogue just giving a lecture or running commentary on the book of Isaiah. Um, lecturing can kind of come off as dispassionate, disconnected. Um, maybe you've heard an expository lecture where it's a running commentary. You get into the Greek tenses. Um, it's a lot of great information, and maybe it's very faithful to the text, but there's no application. There's no pertinent call to respond. There's no confronting the audience with the, the immediate need to respond. There's, there's no awareness of what the prejudices and what the, the sins and what the dispositions of the people in the congregation are and trying to address that in your sermon. So Jesus doesn't just preach to what they want to hear. He doesn't tickle their ears. I mean, he's, he's addressing their idolatry. And that leads to, to number five. I mean, sorry, number six. It's related to pastoral awareness. 
preaching for a response. Preaching for a response. Jesus concludes his expository sermon with an urgent plea for them to respond to him as the Messiah in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He was proclaiming. He says, today, in verse 22, today, emphasized, today, this has been fulfilled. And when Jesus emphasizes today, he's basically saying, listen, I have read the scriptures. I have explained these scriptures. I have told you what my role is as the Messiah to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You need to respond to the fact that I am here in fulfillment of this prophecy. Today, you must respond. There is a response that is demanded. That's what it means to herald. That's what it means to proclaim. You're not just giving a lecture. You're not just giving out information. You're not just reading the Bible and giving a running commentary and then closing your Bible and say, let's all go home. You are impressing upon your hearers that they need to respond to this truth. They need to repent. They need to believe. They need to respond. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's faithfully explaining the text, he's reading the text, but then he's going to turn and pivot upon this audience that he knows is not going to accept this. He, know, he has the pastoral awareness to know what their idols are, what their prejudices are, and he says, okay, you've got to, this demands a verdict. You've got to respond to what I'm saying. This is not a lecture. I'm not laying forth bare facts for you just to, to give head knowledge to. You've got to engage your heart, your mind, your will. You've got to respond. You've got to be exhorted to obey, respond to this message. It demands an urgent response. And so, pastors, your preaching is not done until you urge your hearers to respond. And the text will often dictate how they're to respond. Depending on the text, the text may urge you to respond in repentance. It may urge you to respond in worship. It may urge you to respond in some type of action. It may urge you to respond in some type of reflection. But you can't just leave your hearers hanging out there with a running commentary on the text that's not related to Christ and the gospel and then somehow just fold up your Bibles and say, okay, we've had a good lecture today about um, these Greek words and and how they all relate together. Uh, No, there's got to be an urgent call to respond. And that's what Jesus does today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, you've got to respond today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Okay. Number seven, the final aspect of expository preaching. Supplements to expository preaching. Supplements. Jesus, at the end of this sermon, is going to use illustrations and parables and examples to supplement his, his scripture reading. Now, it's interesting. He does exposit the scripture, but then he gives a parable or a proverb. Physician, heal yourself. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Okay, so this is more of a, of, of not just expositing the text, but he's giving um, a proverb to help them kind of understand that. In addition to the proverb, he gives two illustrations. What does he do? He goes back to Israel's history. He knows that these two illustrations are really going to get their blood boiling. He, he knows that these two illustrations talk about the Gentile um, acceptance of the gospel. And so um, he goes back and talks about from 1 Kings chapter 17, the widow of Zarephath in Elijah's day. So he gives an Old Testament illustration. He gives a story. Uh, Naaman the Syrian during Elisha's ministry, 2 Kings chapter 5. And so Jesus gives both of these illustrations that they would have been very familiar with as a way to enhance his sermon. So it wasn't just a bare, okay, I'm going to read the text, I'm going to explain the text, and then we're all going to go home. No, I think what you see here in Jesus is he read the text, he explained the text, he authoritatively declared the text, he called for a response today, you know, respond to this, and then he uh, supplemented the preaching with illustrations, with stories. And I don't think there's anything wrong with pastors supplementing the expository sermon with illustrations, with stories, with, with uh, mental images to, um, to, to help uh, bring to bear the truths of the text. Now, notice what I say, supplement. The meat of your sermon needs to be the exposition of the text, but it's important from time to time to bring in illustrations, to bring in stories. The stories, the illustrations are not the, the, the skeleton or the meat of your sermon, they are supplements. And I think you see Jesus doing it here. And when, when you bring in real-life illustrations, when you bring in stories that are going to bring an impact upon your audience, you can drive home the truth of the Scripture. And notice what Jesus does here. His illustrations are biblical. 
He goes back and brings up illustrations, not just a made-up illustration. It wasn't just a parable. These illustrations actually go back to actual events in the Old Testament. And so what happens? They get very, very angry at him because he has exposed their idolatry. He's exposed their ethnic pride. He has exposed the fact that... um, that they are not receiving him as the Messiah. And then in the Old Testament, Gentiles were getting the gospel. Gentiles were getting ministered to. And so you see here Jesus giving a seven-fold blueprint for expository preaching. So let's just go over these again so that we can understand what these seven things are because I think it's important for us to understand these. So what we've got is, number one, it involves the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit in order to preach with authority. Number two, preaching usually happens within the context of a corporate worship service where the sermon is the central um, aspect or component of the gathered worship service. Third, it involves reading and giving an exegetical exposition of the text. You read the text, you explain the text, you unpack the text, you give an exegesis of the text, you exposit the text. Fourth, it's got to be Christocentric. It's got to be gospel-centered. It's got to have Christ at the center. It's got to have the story of redemption. It's got, it can't just be moralisms or just a running lecture or a running commentary. It's got to be driven back to the gospel of Christ. Number five, there's got to be a pastoral awareness. You've got to be aware of the needs, the prejudices, the sins, the idolatry of your congregation so that when you do preach this text, you can bring pertinent application into where they are. Sixth, it involves um, exhortation to respond in faith, in repentance. It, it demands a verdict. It demands a, a response. You've got to call. You've got to aim for the heart, aim for the will. And then number seven, it involves supplementing that exposition with illustrations, with stories, with proverbs, with word pictures to help your listeners on an emotional level to be able to grasp the t- truth that you're preaching. So there you have it an expository model by Jesus Christ himself that we see in Luke chapter 4. Chew on this, pastors. Look at these seven aspects and ask yourself, are these part and parcel of your expository preaching ministry? Do you put these into practice? And do you see Jesus doing this? And if we do see Jesus doing this, is this not a good model for us to follow? So again, Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I appreciate you as listeners. Um, If you could just share this on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, share it with people that you think would benefit from it. You can go on to iTunes, give us a a review and rating positively. Um, However you want to get the word out, we would very much appreciate it. Again, thank you for listening. Uh, Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus until we meet again next time through a podcast. May God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you.